0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts. This is the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Tragedy of Twilight Zone, the movie. Twilight Zone is one of the most enduring pieces of American television ever produced, from its iconic intro to the often imitated speech pattern of its host and creator. Twilight Zone defined what thoughtful, probing, and insightful science fiction could aspire to be for an entire generation. And then, in the 1980s, it was made into a feature film, and disaster struck. John Landis always rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. The Twilight Zone was a TV show that ran from 1959 to 1964. It was created and the brainchild of screenwriter Rod Serling. The show lasted a total of five seasons and 156 episodes. It featured now beloved stories written by Richard Matheson, Ray Badbury, Jerry Saul, and a bevy of other science fiction writers. The show features first appearances of many future superstars, Dennis Hoffman, William Shatner, and Robert Redford, just to name a few. During the course of its five-season run, it earned a place in the hearts and minds of Americans from all walks of life. By the time the 1980s rolled around, talk of bringing back The Twilight Zone was all over Hollywood. Ultimately, Steven Spielberg was granted the honor of charting a course into the great unknown. While there were discussions of bringing it back to the small screen, ultimately Spielberg decided to enlist some of his fellow Hollywood elite filmmakers and elevate Rod Serling's masterpiece to the big screen. Uh before we go on cuz we kind of don't talk about the show itself after this point, what did are you a Twilight Zone fan? Did you like The Twilight Zone? Hell yeah. Especially that Tony Baloney episode.
1: Yeah, the, I mean the, the Tony Baloney episode is the the coupe de grace of
0: the Twilight Zone. Oof. I hate you right now. <laughs> what do you What do you like about Twilight Zone? When did you first When did you first see it? Uh,
1: I mean, I, I watched it on the Sci Fi Channel whenever I was a kid.
0: Back when it actually was the Sci Fi Channel, not the Sia Fia Channel.
1: Yeah, yeah, before it got rebranded as Sci Fi, spelled S Y F Y. Um, whenever I was, whenever I was a kid, you know, I watched, I watched Quantum Leap and Sliders on the sci-fi channel. I watched the, uh, the, uh, power hour of Hercules and Xena, Warrior Princess.
0: Fuck Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, but, but, uh, Hail, Our Queen, Lucy Lawless. Lucy Lawless forever. I love that she's married to Robert Tappert too. That just makes me so happy.
1: I'm trying to think of there's any other shows that I enjoyed on the sci-fi channel. Uh, maybe, maybe the X-Files played on there. I don't even remember. Oh, and the Outer Limits, the original 1950s Outer Limits show. And then also the 90s Outer Limits show, which is also very good. Um, in a, in a very like kind of cheese, like I I really enjoy the cheesiness of the, of the 90s Outer Limits show. Oh, and then there's also Tales from the Crypt and the Friday the 13th show, uh, all those shows on the sci-fi channel, but yeah, I love the Twilight Zone. I loved it because I just loved sci-fi stuff when I was a kid. Um, I thought that the stories were really entertaining. It was my first exposure to that kind of like st- so storytelling where there's, so, I, I don't think I fully grasped it as a kid, but that storytelling where there's some kind of like almost profound moral point to it. And it's got this like twist to the at the end where, where it's like, oh shit, it was that the whole time kind of thing. Um, I, I, I think that might have been like the first media I'd ever seen that was like that, you know? Um, and I especially enjoyed, I mean, the whole show is great. The entire run of it is great, but I think it is it season three where they basically, they had this idea to shoot the show on video rather than film. And so because they were shooting it on video, almost as just this cost saving measure, because of the limitations of shooting on video at the time that it was different, it wasn't like today where you can, everything's kind of shot on video now, um, digital video. Uh, and then there was like a time in the 90s where things were shot on video and it was like a little bit easier at that point. But back in the in the 60s, uh, shooting on video was a whole different beast. And so, because of the, the technical limita- limitations of shooting on video, they had to shoot the episodes basically in real time on sound stage sets that they built that were uh, modular and they could walk into different rooms and move things around to basically like go through the motions of an entire episode as almost like a, a 3D stage play. Um, kind of like, you know, the movie Rope uh, or what a movie like Birdman pretends like it is, which is like a one like a, a whole thing shot in one take. Um, But they really were shooting this whole show in one take because of the technical limitations of video. And the but the results are genuinely cool. Like I fucking love those episodes, like the episode with the with the woman who's in the hospital and she keeps seeing that like figure that appears to her at night and she's like following it. Like that, it's just so cool. And it wasn't even it wasn't even done as like a stylistic choice either. It was literally like a, trying to save money on production.
0: Yeah, it's the same thing too in that same season where there's the one about the gambler who who may or may not have killed himself, and the whole the whole episode. You're like, did this guy kill himself, and he's undead, or he is a gambler on the run from the mob because he owes them money? Like that. I think that's what the episode's about. It's been a while since I watched that season, but yeah, I i uh I completely agree the thing I love about it is a rod Serling as a host is really charismatic and interesting, and I wish that more modern shows had a unnamed narrator host like it just it has such a great kind of je ne sais quoi. like there's just this, this 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 feeling about like and now you're gonna be greeted by a person who you know is the person who wrote it, even though sometimes he didn't write him. But you know they they always have him there as like the head creative voice, and he gives this kind of like intro monologue to the episode that's this really cool kind of like atmospheric introduction to the world of the episode, and then you watch the narrative and then he's there at the end to kind of wrap it up and and put a bow on it. It's such a distinctly nineteen sixties thing like it doesn't exist in that way anymore, and also i i mean the the shows obviously are really good like. You know, like I said, you know, some of the greatest science fiction writers of all time, Ray Badbury, Richard Matheson, they like they all worked on the show. And there's, you know, over the five seasons, did some of the episodes get a little repetitive of like, it's a man in a small town and he has no memory of how he got there. Yes, but I still like all of them just because of the the kind of trappings of the time. the 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 kind of anachronistic quality of the episodes is really interesting. They're little time capsules.
1: Yeah, and there's and there's tons of cl- classic episodes. I mean, forgive me for I my brain this is this is a function of just my brain can't remember titles of things or names of characters. So, I've watched these a million times, but no matter what, I can never really remember the names of episodes. Uh, but there's tons of classic episodes like, you know, obviously the the big one that everyone references a lot, uh, time enough at last, which is which is a which is a, a aside from being sort of a cliche of everyone making that joke It's a great episode, Uh, but then there's also, you know, the episode uh, which the ones that I really love, like the episode where the 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 astronaut goes to like a new planet and it's like and it's like abandoned and he's like searching around and then he finds the woman who is the seemingly only other life form there. And then at the twist at the end is that they're named Adam and Eve and this is Earth and they've like this is basically a science fiction version of the Adam and Eve story.
0: Or the, or the one where the, the guy is trapped on a planet with a robot woman and you find out that it's like a weird prison colony and he falls in love with this woman on this isolated prison planet. And at the end of it, he is offered to go back to civilization and he doesn't want to because he doesn't want to leave the robot woman. And then the jailer characters shoot the robot woman because they're like, she's just a fucking robot. Come on, come back to society. Let's do this. You've served your time. Like, oh God. Oh, so sad. Or the, or the, the one um, with Leonard Nimoy, the one that's uh, actually an inspiration for one of the segments in the Twilight Zone movie about it's a, in the Pacific theater during World War II. There's one where a, an American GI gets reincarnated as a Japanese soldier. And they kind of like, it's a morality play about kind of the cyclical nature of trauma and, and the in, man's inhumanity to man, and also yellowface so much, so much offensive yellow face. Yes. Um. The uh I, I love the episode where the guy
1: discovers the the colony of tiny people and he becomes corrupt with power. He lords over them and it's like this weird comment on how men could be easily corrupted by power given, you know, certain circumstances, no matter what their, their initial intentions were. And one of my favorite episodes, maybe my favorite episode, which is totally not I don't think It's an episode that's like on a lot of top 10 lists or whatever. But I love the episode with Buster Keaton in it. Oh, man, that episode is great. Yeah, it's the least like science fiction horror tinged episode. It doesn't have a lot of the atmosphere of a lot of the most classic episodes. But it's so the the way that they chose to construct it and the, the, the sort of meta, the meta textual way that the episode was made is so interesting where there's a character in the 1920s. And when we're in the 1920s, it's shot and presented like a silent 1920s film. And then when the character acts, he's like a janitor for some inventor and he accidentally stumbles into his time machine and goes to the present in the sixties. And when he goes to the present, It becomes, you know, quote unquote, modern day, uh, a a modern day filmmaking aesthetic of just a normal Twilight Zone episode and Buster Keaton is in it. And there's a lot of like Buster Keaton style, physical comedy and gags and stunts. And I just love that episode. It's like the least like Twilight Zone E type episode, but I really just love the way
0: that they made it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think we he, before we move on to the the movie, did you ever watch um Night Gallery? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, Night Gallery is the the true Twilight Zone sequel. There's been there's been a ton of Twilight Zone sequels and remakes, and there's a a new show currently on the air, uh, from CBS All Access at AKA Paramount Plus. Um, there was a show in the 90s, this movie. There's all kinds of Twilight Zone re- rehashes. But the real Twilight Zone rehash is a show called Night Gallery, which is put out, put out in like I think 75 or so. And um, it's exactly what Twilight Zone is. It's a It's a Twilight Zone show, but instead of being science fiction themed, it's horror themed. And Rod Serling was the showrunner and wrote a bunch of the episodes and he's the narrator. Um, and every episode starts in a creepy art gallery with a bunch of paintings, and he gives an atmospheric monologue about some esoteric concept, and then we pan over, and there's a painting that depicts that painting the that idea somehow, and then we go into a story about that, and at the end loops back around and he does the outro.
1: Yeah. And I think it's I think it's worth mentioning since we're really this is not an episode about Twilight Zone, so we're gonna kinda of move on from this, but it's worth mentioning uh that while limited in its vision just based on the time period that it existed in you know the show largely existed rod serling was a huge um proponent of like civil rights and discussion about uh civil rights and and equality in the united states and there was a lot of censorship on television and in movies during the 1950s and 60s so uh you know as a lot of people have said before the, the sort of central concept of what the Twilight Zone was, was we're going to make a show where we deal with the civil rights and race issues and social justice issues. But because we aren't allowed to talk about them directly, we're going to map them onto like aliens and monsters and things like that. And, you know, as maybe in hindsight, as problematic as that idea is of like, The monster is a black guy or whatever. That was a a solution to a problem that he found to get around the censorship at the time. And, um, you know, looking back on it, it, there's issues with it. But I also think that there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about how sort of progressive it was for its
0: time. You know what else he was a big fan of? Not murdering people. Yeah. Huge not murderer. that, That Rod Serling guy. He was like really, really excited about the idea of just not killing anyone yeah i mean he was so against not killing
1: anyone that like i said before his show was like largely based on this concept of like i'm going to preach about not killing certain types of people but i have to make them aliens because they won't let me say gay or whatever
0: he was also just a fan of like not killing performers like he was really excited like no one died on his He had he
1: had a pre like Star Trek fame, William Shatner. He was nobody at the time. Like if 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 William Shatner had been killed, like nobody would have really batted an eye. It wasn't like killing Star Trek Captain Kirk, William Shatner. It was killing nobody.
0: Bill. It was he was killing a guy named Bill Shatz. And he still didn't do it. Yep. Still didn't kill him. Although Bill Shatner. Kind of a fan of maybe killing people, sort of. Look into the thing about his ex-wife. He may or may not have killed his ex-wife.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, when you when you think about it, it's like, no go, no good deed goes unpunished.
0: Yeah. Spielberg decided that the Twilight Zone movie would be a remake of three episodes from the original series and one completely new original story. The directors chosen for the project were John Landis, Joe Dante, George Miller, and, of course, Spielberg himself. So, those four people, that's a hell of a fucking director's lineup right there. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: a movie, technically, just on paper, that is, like, tailor-suited for me. On paper. On paper. When you, when you hear that, you're like, oh, they made a movie where they went into the future and was like, there's gonna be these two guys that make a podcast, and they're, they're boy detectives, and we're just gonna make a movie that exactly appeals to their interests. But then how the, how they fucked that up will... We'll find out.
0: It's a big, it's a big, it's a big fuck up. John Landis specifically was tasked with directing Time Out based on the classic episode Equality of Mercy from the episode of the Twilight Zone TV show. Bill Connor, played by veteran actor Vic Morrow, is a deeply bigoted man. In a karmic twist of fate, he's mysteriously sent back in time, skipping from time period to time period. He finds himself as a Jew during World War II contending with Nazi troops and then as a black man dealing with the Klan, and then finally, as a Vietnamese man during the Vietnam War. He finds himself protecting two small children from dastardly and racist American troops. Originally, the ending of Time Out was that Bill Connor was just a remorseless bigot for the entire story. However, After the studio expressed concern, Landis added a scene where Connor saves two children from oncoming fire, risking his own life, thus giving the character a bit more dimension and a morally gray center. His character utters the words in the script, I swear, I'll protect you, which harbored an eerie foreboding, which examined in the context of what we now know would happen. During the filming of Time Out on July 23rd, 1982, at around 2.30 a.m., Vic Morrow and child actors Micah Din Lee, seven years old, and Renee Shin Yi Chen, six years old, died in an accident involving a helicopter. Are you looking up the footage? I was looking at something different for something uh, for something later on. We can look at the footage.
1: I've seen it before. I, I don't necessarily I'm not like super enthusiastic about re. Yeah, vis- it's fine. Let's it. I don't need <laughs> to see it
0: again either. I, I've seen it. It's dark. Have
1: you seen the footage where it like slows it down and stops it where you can see the silhouettes of like their heads literally detached that 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 exists where they, they've like digitally enhanced it. I've seen that not by choice of like oh i want to see this out of morbid curiosity i i watched it during a time when i was creating content for a true crime website and uh it's i mean it's it's not gruesome cuz it's 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 silhouettes cuz it's like backlit figures that you can only see the silhouettes so it's not like oh literally seeing decapitated
0: bodies but it's still incredibly disturbing yeah uh yeah i I watched it when I was writing this episode, and I, I don't need to really see it again, honestly. Like, it's... we all know what it is. As pre-production ramped up for the film, Landis and the rest of his team had a design problem that they needed to solve, quickly and quietly. How were they going to shoot an incredibly complex and time-intensive sequence with little children? The Screen Actors Guild had very stringent requirements for conditions surrounding children in movies. And one of the glaring issues was a very strict curfew. Someone on the crew suggested that in order to get around this legality, they hire two non-union children and pay them as extras. Landis was approached with this underhanded solution and agreed, which is how you get two children, not even 10 years old, Out during the wee hours of the morning around dangerous stunt sequences. The specifics of the situation though get even worse. The children's parents were not informed of the helicopter or its potential dangers prior to shooting. Landis and the company shot around 10.30 p.m. on the night in question. The children were sent off to be with their parents until they were needed again. Then, around 2.30, a shot with a massive explosion was captured which the helicopter pilot Dorsey wingo deemed was highly unsafe the rain machines were making it difficult for him to safely perform his job wingo asked his co-pilot how they should go about informing the director of their difficulties before they had the chance to speak up however landis approached them saying i need you to fly lower i need you to get closer. They initially expressed a desire to not do that. However, Landis was armed with a bullhorn and supposedly began yelling at the men. Not wanting to lose their jobs, the pilots nodded and set about attempting to make things work. The vehicle in question was a Bell UH UH-1 Iroquois helicopter. To say that this helicopter was sturdy and definitely capable of performing the stunts in question is true. The helicopter was used during the real Vietnam War, literally battle-tested. On the night in question, Landis was overseeing the sequence at the end of the story where Morrow was supposed to flee across a semi-shallow river approximately 5 feet deep and 20 feet long. He was supposed to carry the two children actors across the river while being pursued by American G.I.s. The children and their parents were summoned to set in order to shoot the sequence. There are conflicting reports about just exactly what Dorsey Wingo, a real Vietnam War vet, thought was going to transpire. Some have said he thought the scene wasn't going to have explosions. Others said he did. As they were about to start filming, someone in the video village expressed concern that this was too dangerous. To which Landis turned around grinning and said, You ain't seen nothing yet. Wingo's helicopter was stationed approximately 25 feet off the ground. It was hovering. The intention was that it would fly over the actors as they crossed the river, set down on a patch of land, and Vic Morrow and the two children would flee to it as the climactic ending of the story. As action was called... Wingo turned the helicopter 180 degrees to prepare for the landing. However, an ill-timed mortar was fired, which collided with the tail section of the helicopter, detaching it. The chopper spun out of control and began to careen towards the ground. At that exact moment, Morrow had accidentally dropped Chen into the water. He attempted to scoop her up again, but was not able to react quick enough. The actors were killed instantly as the helicopter's blades decapitated Morrow, Lee, and Chen was crushed by the body of the great machine.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes it, I mean, as I just said before, it makes it, it, it adds so much more disturbing color to this story when you see the footage, um... It's it's not often that there is there's so many stories that go around of horrible things that have happened. And a lot of them are distorted and uh, made. they're, They're transformed by time into just stories that are still bad, but sort of removed from reality a little bit. And even stories that are more recent, it's still hard to, like, think of them in a very concrete way, because they're just things you heard it is a news story of something that you heard happen it's i think it's changing more and more now because everyone just like has cell phones and anything anytime anything happens they just pull out their phone and record it and now we're seeing that like th- i kind of feel like this is one of the first and maybe only for a while uh things that have happened like this and like the the um the 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 Rodney King incident and maybe some other ones that I'm forgetting where there's just actual footage of it, where you can see this thing tangibly and it just makes it even more disturbing and dark. And then now we're seeing that that's happening all the time. We're, you know, all of the recent stuff with like police brutality caught on video and horrible crimes that people have captured on body cams and cell phones and things like that. Like now it's becoming commonplace, which is pretty horrifying, but pre uh, social media and smartphones, There were only a handful of these and it's very rare when you get to actually have this much of a connection to something this horrific that's happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you make a you make a really good point about kind of it's almost kind of like it's almost kind of like our our prior to the introduction of the smartphone, our culture had to reckon with images of extreme nature like almost like once a decade right like for every one uh you know uh white bronco with uh oj simpson in it for every one rodney king for every one 9-11 you know these very big cultural moments that are caught on film they they had they have such immense power and they reverberate throughout our culture and they really define an era And now, because smartphones enable everyone to record their daily horrors constantly, we have recurring and rolling images that should define an era, but the half-life of them is rapidly decreasing over and over and over again. So it's it's just like global culture is being pummeled by these traumatic images, whether it's, you know, war-torn areas or um, would be despots attempting to take over governments or, yeah, you know, it's, it's crazy how quickly our culture has kind of shifted into this new era of being impacted by traumatic imagery and how we have met that extreme need and extreme conflict head on with just un, bridled apathy you know like because what else are you going to do like you can't physically care about everything because it'll rip you in half so you just have to kind of shrug it off yeah it's yeah it's like it it has a desensitizing
1: effect rather than um a galvanizing effect like ever you know everyone said for years I, i i just recently saw somebody in some facebook group some some uh some teenager like murdered uh, uh another young person uh it was it just a, some one of the recent like horrific tr- crimes that have happened um wasn't like a huge high profile one lean leading in uh, leaning into what you're saying right now it was it, this this event wasn't this huge high profile thing um but people were talking about it and some person commented on it and was just like she said something about like oh you know this is you know for you know, kids playing the, this is from like the movie, you know, movies like saw or whatever. like, she was saying something about how like the move, like the violence in movies was like the reason why this happened. And it was like, it's, it was like, it had nothing to do with the story. Like I, I was like, I looked at the story. I was like, Oh, is this a thing where he was like recreating a scene from saw or something like that? But it was just a random horrific murder uh, by a clearly mentally ill kid. And I was just like, "What? Like, I, we're really still saying that we're really still beating that drum of like violence in movies and video games is like the reason why these things happen." And that's the, been the thing that people have said for a long, a long time. And that's kind of what this person was saying was that the the repeated exposure to violence in movies and video games has a desensitizing effect that makes this young, you know, our younger generation just like apathetic to violence and it means nothing to them. And then they feel like they're playing a video game whenever they like go out and just murder somebody, which there's so much wrong with that. It's like, there's been violence in media for decades and decades. And it was worse before. Like we, we didn't have as good a fucking CGI to render somebody's head getting exploded or whatever. But the, the, um, the, the level of violence we were willing to depict was at one time much worse uh, I was, we were literally, I was at my work, we were making a video about how people just used to go to like dissections of bodies as like a pastime. Like people in the 1900s would just go to a hospital in the operating theater and pay tick, pay money for tickets and watch a body being like dissected. Um, but it's, it's this that has that effect, like real life, actual, tangible violence because the stuff in movies and TV, like, unless you ha- are already grappling with mental illness which is a whole problem in and of itself it's not going to overwhelm you because you know it's not real like you're just like this is fake who it's it's it, 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 you can rationalize and intellectualize it but whenever you're constantly confronted with real shit that you cannot process that's whenever you become apathetic and you have to just
0: like shut down to it which kind of makes me like you know if if you put your your head in where john landis was at this point i'm not saying it's understandable because it's not understandable he's a piece of shit um because like everything that could go wrong in this situation went wrong because he and the movie producers were underhanded and did not take proper precautions um but it's interesting to think about what what drives a person to think that they can do all of those things right Because think about the movies he had made: *American Werewolf in London*, *Animal House*, *Coming to America*. These genre-defining, massive, like cultural touchstones, right? And all of those movies had safety protocols and union times, and you know these these uh, safety rails that were put to protect people by unions or by um, health stand health codes. And you know you're 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 thinking there you you lose your grip on humanity a little bit because you're thinking like I'm here to tell this story my vision is objectively amazing this movie is going to be the greatest thing that's ever been made these union rules keep getting in my way like I didn't need a a ten hour day on American Werewolf in London like we could have shot that movie and been done with it two weeks earlier if we would just have gone three hours longer every day and like. What's three fucking hours? Like the fucking PAs couldn't go three hours more. Come on, man. Like I'm an artist here. I just need these troops to marshal behind me so we can do this. And, you know, you get this over inflated sense of self. You, you, you think of, of your opinions as these, you know, you, you've been vetted by the powers that be. Your, your previous exploits have been so financially successful that you're like, Reality is an encumbrance, you know. Safety is a second thought because nothing's gonna go wrong. You're the you you think of yourself as the biggest director of all time, you know. You're not gonna trip and fall. You're you're trying to push things to really sell the celluloid dream, but in doing that, you lose your grip on what's important and why those safety precautions exist. You know, it's all ego, right? It's just. Everything else is, is fucking dead. The superego, the id, they don't exist anymore. It's just ego. Yeah. I mean, the the phrase or
1: the thing that he said um, when he looked at them and said, you ain't seen nothing yet, specifically made me think about that. Because I, I was actually just thinking about this earlier today. And I don't even think it was related to this. I think it was just a completely separate thought. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about how in the in one of the behind the scenes documentaries that they've made throughout the years that's gone, that's come on to one of the many DVD and Blu-ray reissues that they've done of, of the Back to the Future trilogy. Um, there's this whole thing where, uh, you know, in the first Back to the Future, there is uh, when in the scene whenever uh, Marty McFly tries to save George McFly from when he falls out of the tree and he's going to get hit by the car, which is the thing that causes his parents to meet. He saves him, and that's the whole thrust of the movie is that he's changed history. But he get, he gets hit by the car, and there's a shot where Mar where uh Michael J Fox fall uh, gets hit by the car. He flies back. It's a it's a profile like medium shot. And he gets, he falls back and hits his head. His head just bounces off of the pavement. And it's like, it's real. Like, like there's, there's no like showing him falling and then cutting away and hearing a sound. And then he actually falls on a crash mat or anything like that. Like they got a shot of him getting uh, violently pushed or yanked back and his head hits the the sidewalk and they did the they did the take multiple times and they talk about it in the in the in the documentary um where Michael J. Fox is like, yeah, like that that was like really painful. But the thing that uh you know Robert Zemeck has kept saying to me was uh pain is temporary, film is forever. And there's a part of me and I think that in this culture of looking up to these artists, there's a part of everybody that thinks of that as like that's that's cool. Like, yeah, man, like you're fucking risking it all and you're, you're being a renegade and you're taking risks or whatever. But then it's like, is, but it's like, but really is, is, is pain temporary? Cause I'm pretty sure you could get like a really bad concussion from just slamming your head against the pavement repeatedly, which could kill you. Or at the best case scenario is you, you know, you get like regressive brain trauma that causes you to have all these neurological issues that results in shit like, murdering your entire family or you know at, at least having dying much earlier than you could have um I mean who fucking knows maybe that is what triggered his Parkinson's disease I don't know uh and and there i th- I thought about that with that quote that he said because it's like there's a lot of discourse now around looking back and reassessing uh how filmmakers act and a lot of the horror stories or the stories of people talking about how you know, they got yelled at by their by the by a director or a director made them do a take like 150 times. Like there's this bit, there's been this big reassessment of Stanley Kubrick of like he was abusive because he made everybody do takes like 150 times to get it right. And like you don't need 150 takes to get a to get a good take. He was just being abusive um or stuff like David Fincher and how uh, obsessive with perfection he is or like some of the stuff with like David O'Russell with those videos of him yelling at Lily Tomlin and things like that there's like there's discourse around that where it's like there's people talking about how that stuff is abusive and unnecessary and then there's like a counter discourse where it's like you got like you you got to go you you, you got to push it to get to to execute your vision
0: yeah it's the Ridley Scott thing of like would Blade Runner be as good as it is without the atmospheric black coal smoke that was in the air or whatever they were using for the you know the haze atmosphere maybe maybe not but it made all these people sick and they were like coughing and throwing up black like soot for months and who knows what that did to them but the movie is an all time classic but is an all time classic worthy of anybody being sick for even one minute you know I don't know
1: yeah, exactly. Which is like, I, I like, I don't know exactly. I I mean, I, I'm not going to say I see both sides of it because that's not what I'm trying to say at all. But I, I, I definitely see the, the discourse about that and how it has like a really good point because in any other industry behaving like that would not be acceptable at all. Like if I just like yelled at my employees to get them to like, do a good job, like, that would just be unacceptable. It would, it would be an HR issue for sure. But there's like special rules sewn into entertainment and art, artistic jobs. Um, and I even think about that with stuff like, you know, that whole thing where like Tom Cruise was yelling at those dudes for violating COVID-19 rules, where it's like, I, I, I agree with him, even if I don't agree with him because the reason why he cares about it so much is because he wants Hollywood to open back up and for productions to start again and for the movie theaters to open up. That's why he cares about it so much. I, but I agree with him that the, that the mandates are important and that those guys are just being so stupid and irresponsible for flouting them. But also in any other industry, if you just got caught on tape, just like yelling at your employees and calling them idiots or whatever, it would be a problem. But because, but because it's Hollywood, it's like, Oh, he's an artist. Like this is just how it is. And yeah, I I don't even know, really know what I'm trying to say. But what I guess what I what I'm trying to tie it back to is like this story takes away the, a lot of the ambiguity from that. This is like a really extreme example of how there's a line you can cross that just should never be crossed and it doesn't matter what your artistic vision is and whatever bullshit about how you need to push it to get the the good thing and it's not going to be as good if you don't do it like this or whatever. Like these people died because of. That cocky like I need my vision executed like you ain't seen nothing yet like that that phrase just really triggered this thought in me of like this is just such a good example of like the extreme um, the the, ext- the extreme fork in the road of like there's no ambiguity to this whatsoever like three people died because you pushed your vision so hard.
0: Yeah, like I do agree on some level with the idea that nothing good has ever been made without some kind of sacrifice But I also think that there's limits within that and there needs to be consent within that. Like, I don't I don't know that every movie needs to be, you know, Fitzcarraldo moving an actual boat over a mountain in the Amazon and like people's hands being crushed and almost dying like that doesn't need to happen without the consent of everybody there you know and it did happen and i love it and that movie is great and the story behind the movie is almost more interesting than the actual movie but could that movie have been done on a on a back lot with you know what werner herzog describes as the plastic solution yeah i think it could have would it be an all-time great no and that's why the that's where the tension comes from how do you how do you navigate those things and for me those tensions eh, they end pretty pretty squarely whenever somebody's getting hurt. Like I don't I don't I don't I don't think that's uh, that's cool. Um, and I, I think there is a with especially within kind of like film Twitter whatever. There's a very there's a romanticization of that which on a on a on a good day I'm able to separate myself from. And sometimes I will not lie and be like, oh man, isn't it fucking cool that so and so only ate a fucking piece of bred for six months and lost 140 pounds to be this role like that's cool is that healthy Eh, you know but like nothing cool has ever happened without some sort of sacrifice um the issue being that there's an internal mandate for those things and an external mandate and when the external mandate is happening things can get screwy sometimes which is how you get stories like this act break fucking clown clown horn Act 2, the tragedy. The set was closed down immediately after this horrible accident, with the parents of the two children immediately being rushed to a nearby hospital. They understandably could not stop crying and screaming. The staff diagnosed them as being in shock. The story immediately took on a life of its own, with the public and media taking an immense scrutiny to what had happened that night. News of Landis and the production's skirting of labor laws and his fateful quote of you ain't seen nothing yet reverberated throughout the evening news broadcasts for months afterwards. In October of 1984, the National Transportation Safety Board reported that the tragedy had inspired an investigation which had just commenced. The Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, had just instituted regulations in March of that year to define how aircraft were regulated during film and television productions. Frustratingly, though, the new regulations only covered fixed wing aircraft, not helicopters. The National Transportation Safety Board recommended an amendment to the regulations to incorporate helicopters, which was accepted in 1986. But this action was too little too late. People were dead and the public wanted justice. The tragedy and public outcry surrounding the accident on the set of the Twilight Zone the movie led to a civil and criminal lawsuit against the filmmakers that lasted for years. In 1986, a state trial took place. Landis and his confederates were brought up on three counts of gross negligence and three counts under a death under unlawful circumstances constituting manslaughter charge. Though an initial trial was commenced, it was dismissed for lack of evidence. But then, in an appeals court, it proceeded to a full juried trial. I mean, before we even get to the next part, like,
1: how bullshit is that? lack of evidence like what uh, what more evidence could you need like it's on video multiple witnesses corroborate corroborating just his like cavalier attitude the fact that he uh was ordering the, the the helicopter to go lower like here's the established facts of like witness eyewitnesses and witnesses corroborating and things caught on camera on this film set that John Landis was overseeing, three people died in an in a horrible accident, a preventable accident. The accident was caused based on a number of factors that were clear violations of rules and laws. They were shooting a movie at like 2.30 a.m. with two children who had been hired in some weird, sleazy, back-alley way of like, we're just going to make the, book them as extras so that we don't have to uh, um, abide by child labor laws. The parents did not know that there was gonna be, that there were gonna be hel- a helicopter or explosions on the set or any of this stuff. And, and he, and, and multiple people kept saying we shouldn't do this. Like, there's other ambiguous parts of it. Things like, oh, we don't know necessarily if the pilot knew there was gonna be explosions. We don't know necessarily, but, I feel like none of those things even it's like it's like a smoking gun. And yet, like, it just it's so bizarre to me. I mean, it's not bizarre to me because it's like it's because he's a rich guy. Like, obviously, just an immense amount of wealth, just throwing money at lawyers and being a celebrity. Uh, You know, it buys you. Uh, It buys you a lot in the legal system. But it's just so crazy to me because it's like like the, the court. The case was initially thrown out for not having enough evidence in a case that I feel like has the
0: most evidence of anything I've ever seen. Like, there were literally, like, four cameras all around. <laughs> like, like everywhere. The jurors of the trial were under intense observation, and at one point were even taken out to the location where the crash had happened, and watched a reenactment of the sickening events in question. Landis was stoic and quiet through much of the trial. When asked if he had viewed the footage prior to the trial, he responded, Only twice before, it's very hard for me to watch. Micah Lee's father, Daniel Lee, testified that he had witnessed Landis instruct the helicopter pilot to fly lower. All four parents testified that they were never informed that there would be explosives or helicopters on set. They all testified that they were repeatedly told that no one was in any danger during the shoot. A parade of witnesses were called and all of the defendants were called to testify. Landis, Folsey, Wingo, production manager, Allingham, and the explosive specialist, Paul Stewart, delivered testimony. The higher-ups pled guilty to illegal hiring practices of minors, but insisted that they did nothing wrong over the course of shooting. It was a bitter battle. The opening salvo from the defense alleged that the parents of the children were liars and that they were fully making up stories Watch this little clip of Harlan Brown, the defense attorney, literally saying this.
1: They will deny that they knew that there were going to be a helicopter and special effects in a scene which they had seen a similar scene five hours before. We just cannot explain that uh, because Mr. Folsey, in fact, told them all of that. There was an independent witness to that and there's another family that was recruited Uh, whose children were standbys? who were all told that.
0: That's simply an outrageous misstatement, and uh, counsel knows it is. The parents are going to come in here and testify truthfully. They have absolutely no reason to lie.
1: It was during the filming of this scene that actor Vic Morrow, six-year-old Renee Chen, and seven-year-old Micah Lee were killed. What caused the helicopter to crash and explode is still being debated. The trial, meantime, will continue...
0: If, for context, Harlan Brown was the man who got the doctor off who over-prescribed pills to Elvis. So, you know, he's kind of a piece of shit. Over the course of the trial, the defense repeatedly asked for a mistrial, but was denied. Production assistant Donna Schumann testified... Why did I pronounce Schumann that way? I don't know. I was, I was not... I wasn't going to say anything, because it seemed like you were just moving on, but I was like, that was... That was a weird... That was a weird way of saying that. What the fuck? It's... <laughs> I mean, Schumann is a pretty common name. I don't know why I was like, (laughs) Schumann. Like, what is that? What was that? Schumann. Production assistant, Donna Schumann. 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 You said it like for
1: half a second, Bill Cosby tried to astral project into your body so that he could like escape the hell of his own reality and just start over in just a some other guy's body that hasn't done these horrible things. And he almost did it for, like, a millisecond. But then your body, like...
0: Donna
1: your, your body, like, immediately kicked him out. Like, you have, like, a really
0: strong immune system. And you were just like, get the fuck out of here, ghost dad. Production assistant Donna Schumann testified that she thought the creatives involved absolutely knew what they were doing. And that she heard George Folsey saying they'd put him in jail for having those kids this close. Oh, those children. Heard George Folsey te- saying... Someday we're going to not have to record after a full day of work. And in my hot ass apartment, someday we're going to be able to record and I'm going to be able to be fresh and it'll be great. We're going to record at 6 a.m. in our shared mansion. Oh, God, it's going to be great. It's, it's just every
1: morning we slide down our Richie Rich style water slides out of our bedrooms.
0: <laughs> no, dude, it's out of our bedroom, shared bedroom. Yeah, but there's two slides like out out of our beds. Production assistant Donna Schumann testified that she thought the creatives involved absolutely knew what they were doing and that she had heard George Folsey saying they'd put him in jail for having those children this close to explosives. The trial raged on with each side getting more and more contentious. Every day after the trial would break, the defense and the prosecution would stand in the hallway and call the other side liars in front of massive bays of media cameras. Ultimately, the defendants were acquitted in the nine month trial that ran from 1986 to 1987. The prosecutor went on record saying that one of the key contributing factors was.
1: Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Before you, I just, before you go on to this, I have to stop. I have to stop us. And I just have to brace everybody for what is about to come. So I just want to, let's take a little breather here. So just to recap, John Landis was directing a segment for the Twilight Zone movie. He was recklessly insistent on a number of different variables and circumstances that were many of them in a legal gray area, some of them outright illegal, but he and his crew took various back channel shady routes to accomplish these conditions. He had two small children who had been hired as extras instead of as principal actors so that they didn't have to adhere to child labor laws at 2.30 in the morning on a set with a with a real helicopter flying around in, like, conditions of, like, fake rain being, like, rained down on it and, like, explosions and lightning. They're just running around in this water, this, like, two feet of standing water, with a helicopter that's flying overhead, and he's telling them over the radio to go lower and lower. This is not a fake helicopter. This is not, like, a thing on a rig. This is a real helicopter flying down to the ground to hover over. Two children uh, an explosion hits the helicopter it crashes and kills them he, he, we go to trial and he's being prosecuted for this so just just brace yourself for this because it's it's a it's a hard pill to swallow
0: no blaines I believe is the emotionally respectful way of putting it
1: I just you are not like you are not gonna believe what this is you are not gonna believe what this thing is that like caused this trial to cause John Landis to stay out of prison.
0: The prosecutor later went on record saying that one of the key contributing factors as to why the jury declared them innocent was that they had somehow been told an untruth that John Landis was going to make a film about the trial and that he was going to cast them to play
1: themselves. Society died on this day on the day this happened society died we talk about how like everything's fucked now the to pay. things have just gone so far as to everything's a parody of itself satire doesn't exist anymore we just live in a fucking existential nightmare but it happened on this day the i mean and j- this is not necessarily confirmed this is something that was said so it's not like these people, like, came out and admitted to this. But if it is to be believed, these jurors gave a an innocent ruling to a guy who murdered two... Oh, let me... T- <laughs> to a guy who allegedly contributed to the deaths of two young children through his own criminal negligence. And they let him off because they thought that he would cast them in a movie.
0: It's so depressing. And also so deeply american yeah that's that's exactly
1: what i mean it's like it's the it's it's too surreal and bizarre to even to, it defies satire or like it de- it defies any concept of satirizing american culture that these people let a guy go for manslaughter because they thought that he'd cast him in a movie
0: if they wanted to see the movie made and appear within it, logically, they had to acquit him. He couldn't make the movie from behind bars. Was this true? Of course not. But the jury purportedly heard this, and whenever Landis would be scribbling on a legal pad during the trial, they would collectively take note, assuming that he was writing a scene for this mythical film. Andrew, what... What is the title of this movie that, that he's supposedly writing? Um, the 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 movie about the 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 court case. Yeah, like is it like "My Life in the Twilight Zone": colon the legal drama of John Landis, a John Landis film.
1: Yeah, or it's like, or it's like "A Man Accused." The
0: Landis story. Yeah, the Landis story, or like you ain't seen nothing yet. Mm, or um. Or the it's a the modern day version of it, it like the remake that they make because he couldn't get it made by a movie studio. So it was like a made for TV movie, but eventually, you know, since everything new is old again and everything old is new again, they, uh, they do a big budget remake with, um, Johnny Depp's comeback vehicle. And he's playing John Landis in this movie. And it's got like a one word title. that's like classy and kind of doesn't tell you what it's about, but after you've seen it, it, you know what it means. And the. It's like a the the trailer is like a slow motion courtroom drama footage set to like a tonal off key downbeat cover of everybody wants to rule the world. And uh, then, you know, it's it's him. It's John Landis, the character John Landis, played by Johnny Depp, scribbling on a notepad. And he looks over and like winks at the camera because <laughs> we're the we're the viewer. And then it fades to black. And then in big giant helvetica letters and it just says lower i thought oh, i thought you were saying
1: he was going to wink at the jury and i was like in the movie he just admits that he bribed the jury by casting well him that's <laughs> the
0: implication that's that that's the that's the implication right cuz we're like the shot's from the jury box and he like winks at at us the jury lower starring johnny depp a, a victimized director in court yeah yeah uh or
1: fucking the oh dear god i got no, I i got no more oh no i had one it's it was it was too too far
0: so what of the victim's family well morrow's family settled out of court in a civil case within a year The children's families collected millions of dollars in civil lawsuits, but that obviously does not solve the horrible pain of losing a child. Landis spoke about the incident in 1996, saying, There was absolutely no good aspect to that whole story. The tragedy, which I think about every day, had an enormous impact on my career, which it may possibly never recover. Despite this, Landis enjoyed another decade of an illustrious career, making some of the most iconic comedies of the 80s and 90s, proving once again that if you have enough money and shake the right hands, nobody cares what you do. A couple years ago, um, I saw, so there's
1: this movie called Tales of Halloween, and it's, a, it's an anthology um, horror movie where uh, kind of like VHS or ABC's, abcs of death but it's a little bit more low budget than that and it is uh every story takes place on halloween and um mostly it was like unknown directors but one of one of the one of the directors was neil marshall like he was like the biggest it was like him and then a bunch of other like unknown filmmakers pretty much um but so this so one of the segments was directed by uh, this guy, Ryan Schifrin, um, and uh, I, I saw this movie at a screening and there was a Q&A with all of the directors except for Neil Marshall, who was, you know, too too fucking big league for that bullshit. Um, but all the other directors were there doing a Q&A and this guy was there. And so his segment, it's about these two, um, criminals who they want to, uh, kidnap and ransom the son of this famous, uh, I think, I think in the movie, he's a famous director. Uh, I think that's what it is. It could be something else. It could be he's just like a famous something, but I think he, I think he is a famous director. And so, uh, on Halloween night, they abduct his son while when he sends him out to go trick or treating. And basically the premise of this of of this segment is they kidnap him and they're going to ransom him off. But the the person doesn't want him back and they discover that it's not a kid. It's like a little demon. And he's like, a I guess it's like a demon who like once you invite him into your life, he just like won't leave until you can like somehow pass him off on somebody else. And he like causes a bunch of trouble for you. So. In, in actuality, this is like this weird little demon that had that had attached itself to this guy. And then um, them abducting him actually got rid of him. And so he was happy for it. And so the the guy, the, the famous person that they steal, they abduct the child from was played by John Landis. He was in the movie playing this character, which was just a cameo. Basically, he appears in the beginning, um, sending his son off to go trick or treating. And then he appears later on when they call him and he's like, I don't fucking want that thing back. Um, and the director in the Q and A, he said, um, so at the end of the segment, after they, they, they keep trying to get rid of him. It's one of those like, it's one of those like, uh, stories where you get some kind of object and you, no matter what you do, you throw it into the ocean and it appears in your room the next day. It's like that story. It's like that kind of story. And so they keep trying to get rid of this little demon guy and they can't. And then in the end, they finally just like accept it. And they're just like, ah, screw it. Like, let's just we're just going to have this little demon guy. He's going to be our little like sidekick. And so they're in their van and they stop, stop at this convenience store. And one of the guys is like, all right, I'm going to go in and grab something real quick. And then he goes out and he comes back. He, he goes in and he comes back out and he gets in the van. And he's like, all right, I got your beef jerky and I got your thing or whatever. And then he turns around and he's like, his friend is gone. And he's like, what the hell? And then uh, the demon pops up from the back seat and he's holding the guy's decapitated head. And the guy's like, oh, ah! and then that's the end of it. And in in the um, in the Q&A, the, guy, the director said that the reason how he was able to get John Landis is because his dad is some famous composer that's worked with John Landis before. So he's like friends with him. So he just like got John Landis to do it through his dad. But and so he's like, oh, can you talk to John Landis? And I, I really want him to play this character. It's, it's like a, you know, it's a, a cameo of this famous director or whatever. And so his dad was like, okay. And so he had him send him the script. And in the original script for the short, what the ending was that they, the two guys are in the van and they accept that they're going to keep the demon guy. And then the demon pops up from the backseat, holding the decapitated head of John Landis. And then that's the end of it. And they go, ah. And he said that when he sent him the script, John Landis was like, listen, I'll do this, but I can't do that thing at the end. I can't have anything to do with anything involving decapitated heads or people getting their heads cut off or anything like that. I can't have anything to do with that. So you have to change the ending. I can't have anything to do with that. And so he changed the ending to that, which number one, I was, I thought was weird. Cause it's like, he's still in it. Like it's, it seems like, like, like if, if I was him, I wouldn't want to be involved with it at all. I'd be like, no, I can't do this. Like I can't do a thing. You have to change that whole thing. I can't have any decapitated heads in it, but apparently he was okay with it. As long as he wasn't the decapitated head. Um, But also, that story is just so fucking bizarre. Why would you and why would you court John Landis? I mean, there's tons of people who, you know, still revere John Landis and, you know, don't necessarily. I mean, he's not he has not by any means been universally like ostracized. Like,
0: yeah, fuck universal ostracization or whatever. I'm just saying as a decent fucking human, why would you do that? I would never, I would never do that. I would never fuck with that.
1: I don't want to go so far as to say that this guy is not a decent human being because I don't know him, but he is just a rich kid, like son of a famous composer. Like, you know, I I feel like, you know, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you have to you have to go really far. You have to go to Harvey Weinstein lengths to get fully, um, you know, ejected from like Hollywood elite society. But, but, but I just thought, I just thought it was so crazy because it's like, I can't even believe that guy is allowed to tell that story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Landis would direct little projects here and there, but never reachieve his former glory. His behavior during the trial was... Case in point, speaking of little
1: projects... Uh, one of the only uh John Landis movies I've seen like of like the last you know of recently or whatever was a movie that he made in like 2011 or something like that called Burke and Hare, um, which starred Simon Pegg and Andy Circus, um, and it was about two guys in the in the 1800s who start uh, they realize that they can sell cadavers to um, hospitals for profit because they need cada- cadavers for like experiments and dissecting and and research. But then they're, they're like however they were getting cadavers or whatever just like dries up. And so they start murdering people to give them cadavers. And it's like a true story, I guess. But he he turned it into like a weird dark comedy starring Simon Pegg and Andy Circus.
0: His former behavior during the trial was remorseless was so remorseless that it permanently killed his friendship with steven spielberg when asked about it spielberg said no movie is worth dying for i think people are standing up much more now than ever before to producers and directors who ask for too much if something isn't safe it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell cut When the Twilight Zone movie was finally released, it did not feature any footage that was shot with Morrow or the two children crossing the river. It was the originally written, straightforward, this dude is a bad guy ending. All the darkness
1: and bleakness and the true tragedy of this story aside, this is like the biggest cosmic fuck you studio. We're not doing the Love Conquers All ending. We're doing the original, darker ending. Don't interfere with our shit
0: or else three people are gonna die. Today, most people don't remember that The Twilight Zone even had a movie, unless they're aware of this specific story. Culture has moved on from John Landis and The Twilight Zone in general. Yes, He was a driving force behind some of the 80s' most beloved classics, but his involvement in this story and his handling of the events afterwards ostensibly prevented him from progressing any further as an artist or public personality. Traditionally, when our culture comes face-to-face with an art-versus-the-artist debate, there are a variety of opinions and various shades of gray to be considered. However, in the case of John Landis and the tragedy behind the Twilight Zone, the movie, everyone seems to pretty much agree with a simple, ineffable statement. Screw that guy. Do you, um, did you, did you like the Twilight Zone movie? I can't really divorce it from this story, so I can't really look at it as just like an independent thing. Yeah, but before before you knew about the 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 story behind it. I didn't know about it before this. I I knew about this story before I knew about the the thing.
1: Oh, interesting. Cuz I saw the movie when I was younger like on HBO before ever knowing anything about this.
0: Yeah, no, I knew about the story first.
1: Um and also and also there's like separ- there's other segments that, you know, are in, aren't involved in this.
0: Yeah, but the it's all just tainted by that story though. Um I don't know. It's okay. I think it's fine. I don't think it's like, you know, if I'm trying to separate it, like I think it's cool, but it it doesn't even remotely live up to the pedigree of the people involved.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of the movie. Um I mean for as a kid for the very simple reason that I was just like I just didn't I didn't like the idea of just remaking existing Twilight Zone episodes. I was just like I would I would rather new story. like I understand the concept of reintroducing it to new audiences and that there was people in the 80s who, you know, younger people who didn't watch the Twilight Zone who that would be. It would be like, oh, this is a new story. I've never seen this before. Or whatever. Um. But for me, watching it, I was just like, "Oh, I'm I'm completely uninterested in them just remaking st- existing stories. Like, I I didn't I did. There was nothing. I didn't find it fascinating to see those stories like executed in like a newer way. For some, for I'm not even I'm not even saying I'm against that. Like I, I like I'm I'm not against remakes, but for I, for some reason, I was just I had no interest in in that.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm honestly I'm more interested in the serial kind of multiple stories told in succession that are unrelated linked together through a narrator mechanic of the you know 90s tv show or even the new show um that to me feels like the actual formula for twilight zone and when you remove it into a more theatrical setting don't know that it really is the twilight zone it's just something named the twilight zone um i think there could be an interesting idea of a feature film that opens and closes with a narrator that is a sort of Twilight Zone-esque story, that's a little bit more interesting to me. But, you know, as just a simple, we're going to do, like, three or four episodes of the show and shove them together and call it a movie like it just doesn't that's just not particularly creatively interesting to me even though the people involved are like so cool that it overpowers that and you're like oh yeah this is gonna be rad oh it's not rad and people died for this man this sucks
1: yeah yeah i I agree that it's like it's like oh awesome like fucking joe dante and then his segment is i just it's just like it's such an underuse of him.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. And Spielberg and George Miller, like George Miller, George Miller made the the one that's like the terror at 3000 feet remake, right? Yeah, like that, like that doesn't need to be remade. I I would much rather have George Miller make a really cool, original, weird story. That's George Miller, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, I just like I, I had zero interest, in, like, especially because like they remade the like biggest ones. I would at at I would at least like them to do a remake of like one of the weirder less known ones. Yeah, I mean honestly that that movie kind of turned me off of like I for a long time I felt like I didn't like anthology movies cuz I just so had no interest in the Twilight Zone movie and it was it was only like I remember that like I at one point years ago maybe like 2014 or 15 I I just me and my friends decided to watch a bunch of like the VHS sequels and stuff and i was like oh i actually really love these and i got like totally turned back on to, to anthology movies but but i for the longest time i just thought i didn't like them because i just really did not like twilight zone and i was like yeah i guess i just don't really like it whenever it they're like these disconnected stories that have no through line but but it it was it was like how i didn't think i liked apples because my mom only bought red delicious when i was a kid it was a bad exa- bad example that was making me think that i didn't like it
0: what type of bananas did she buy <laughs>
1: Um, I'm, I'm remembering that I'm pretty sure that anytime we ever bought bananas, they were like dull bananas. I'm pretty sure. So they weren't a Chiquita. No, I don't. The only memory I have, I mean, I'm sure I've eaten Chiquita bananas a bunch, but the only specific memory I can conjure of having a Chiquita banana is that. One time, after having um, been out uh, covering a story for the news, I went to Barnes and Noble to type up my article before having to go to my other job, and I and just I had like thirty minutes to quickly write this article, and I was like, I gotta eat something, and then Barnes and Noble had bananas, and I and it was a Chiquita, they were Chiquita bananas, I bought one and I ate it. And I was like, this banana is weirdly good. And I feel like it's not a good sign that this banana at a Barnes and Noble is delicious. I feel like there's a lot of chemicals and and uh hormones and shit making this so delicious.
0: Well, on that note, any uh any closing thoughts about John Landis' uh piece of shit?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. Maybe I already kind of like delivered my thesis or whatever um that you know I've, I've i've thought about this discourse a lot lately because people are talking about it a lot and it's like it's kind of hard to decide how i really feel about it because of the same thing that you're saying where it's like no i don't want people to be abused or hurt or especially killed but i kind of feel like just saying that like unless a film shoot is just like fun and comfortable throughout the entire thing. It's bad. Like that just, that, that doesn't align to me with the reality of how you make things and how it's not always fun. And sometimes it takes sacrifice and struggle. And sometimes it's really hard and frustrating. And sometimes people's emotions get, you know, cause you're putting yourself in an incredibly vulnerable state. It's like maybe Christian Bale is a total douchebag, or maybe um, actors are by definition, their job is to put themselves in a, an emotionally vulnerable state and their their emotions are going to be naturally raised and it's going to be easier to trigger them and get them upset whenever they're p- making themselves vulnerable to play a character. And maybe they're I don't know where I don't know what the balance is. I don't know what percentage of it is. Christian Bale was a douchebag for yelling at Shane Hurlbutt because he was messing around with lights while they were shooting a scene. And what percentage of it is? Come on, man. Like you're asking this guy to like be emotionally vulnerable and then you get mad whenever he is emotionally vulnerable and loses his cool and yells at a guy because he's in an emotional state. Um, I don't I don't know what the right thing is for that. I don't know what what the balance is. Um, but I do know that, um, you know, a, a good example, a really good example of it is the whole Joss Whedon versus Zack Snyder thing, where it's like by all accounts from all these from all of these accounts of people on set, Joss Whedon was exhibiting these really toxic and abusive behaviors that were completely not appropriate. Um, But a lot of the Snyder fans or whatever were basically making the argument of like, because that is bad, therefore Zack Snyder is the greatest filmmaker of all time, which is like those are not mutually exclusive. Like Joss Whedon can be an abusive, hypocrite piece of shit who abused his power and did some fucked up things. And Zack Snyder can also be a mediocre filmmaker who makes things that I just do not like at all. Um, and, and, and a lot of the things that people were saying were like, you know, what on a Zack Snyder set, everything is fun all the time. And like, I don't want to sound like I'm against that. Like, that sounds great. Like, but once again, I'm just going to say that making things isn't always fun. And I feel like it's dangerous to say that it has to be fun and like comfortable at all times or else it's bad because that doesn't align with my reality of how
0: you make something. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. Please subscribe to the show. Rate us on Apple Music, all that bullshit. Uh, If you want to find me, you can find me at heydavebaker.com where you can find my books, Night Hunters, Star Trek, Voyager 7's Reckoning, Fuck Off Squad, Everyone Is Tulip, and a bunch of other cool stuff. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet?
1: You can find me going, uh, you know, having these terribly... Uh, bigoted thoughts towards the famous directors of our past. But then one day my body gets transported systematically throughout history into their bodies. So at one moment I'm Cecil B. DeMille at one moment, I'm Alfred Hitchcock at one moment. I'm John Landis. And I'm able to see life through their eyes and realize that my bigotry towards famous, powerful filmmakers with problematic uh, behaviors on set are um, unfair and that I'm judging them harshly. But I there is no happy love conquers all ending because in the end, I'm still just like, fuck John Landis. And you can also find me at DAPriceWrites.com where you can get my comic, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. No uh, children were murdered in the making of this comic um um a child dies in the comic but it was not it was a drawing uh i assure you and uh you can also get some deep cuts merch you can get some shirts you can get some fanny packs you can get some fucking dog handkerchiefs with some deep cuts graphics on them uh, you can go to deepcutspod.com and click on the shop or you can go to bit.ly.com slash deep cuts merch um, we got some new stickers on there we're gonna have some new designs for shirts and things coming up soon Maybe by the time you hear this, I don't know.
0: We also have to announce. We have to announce on the show the winner of the Pizza Pizza Mimariza Celebritsa at the Mountains of August Madness winner. We had the the playoffs where we couldn't decide between the Pizza Pizza Mimariza. Contestants, And so the winner is Andrew. The winner of the first annual
1: Pizza Pizza Paparitza Mimarizza Celebrizza at the Mountains of August Madness final showdown is Aaron Dockery with his need me like your long breads meme.
0: Which was voted on in the group. We did not decide that. It was a close run between him and Brock's uh, My Chemical Voldemort. Uh, but ultimately Aaron Aaron got it.
1: You, you won, buddy. It's, it's all you. You can update your resume again. All right, so here's 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 the deal, Dave. There's too many good ones. I can't narrow it down to 5. God damn it. We're going to we're going to blow through these. I will shorten the descriptions. We'll get through these in the time of 5 because I can I cannot I, I just can't decide. There's 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 I just can't do it. I can't fucking do it. All right. So, first one. So, this is a meme that is showing you all- <laughs> <laughs> This is not only is this a great meme, but it's also a genuinely good suggestion for an update to the Facebook UX that I would actually petition for and go to a fucking Facebook meeting and demand they make. So it's a, it's showing you all of the different, um, Facebook reacts that you can do. The like, the love, the care, the ha ha, the wow, the sad, the angry. So it's like showing you all the reacts that you can choose whenever you're reacting to somebody. And so, um, Aaron Dockery, uh reigning champion of the pizza pizza papariza rizza celebritza at the mountains of august madness final showdown is suggesting <laughs> that we add a um another react to the list of reacts which is the you think I'm gonna say no react.
0: Yeah, it's my it's my face making the you think I'm gonna say no face. Which for people who don't know is a thing now where I sent it to Andrew once in a conversation where I made this dumb expression, put my hands up and said, You think I'm gonna say no? And now It's a fucking thing that people I've never met all across the country now say. It wasn't, you weren't, you didn't even send it to
1: me saying you think I'm going to say no. You just sent it to me as like you were doing a weird character. It was just you with your hair like messed up, with your hands up. I put the you think I'm going to say no text on it.
0: Because that was a separate meme. Because we used to just pitch each other ideas for movies. And then we were always in agreement and then it, Got to this point where one of us was just like, yeah, that sounds great. Do you think I'm going to say no to that idea? Like, of course, I'm going to want to do that. And then you were the one that combined the face with the hand movement with our other conversation meme of you think I'm going to say no.
1: Yeah. So that was like it's even further removed from that. Like you we, when you took this picture, there was no scenario in which you could have ever foretold that this is where it would end up. But I think it's an it's a genuinely good suggestion, and I wish I had a. You think I'm going to say no emoji?
0: Yeah, I'm going to give that one uh, nine and a half.
1: Nine and a half. The uh, the the Mickey Rourke. What are you
0: What are you getting it? Getting it?
1: Uh, for for pure um, pragmatism, I'm giving it a full ten. Um, this next one is uh, a <laughs> uh, uh, no, notorious meme photo of Ben Affleck um, standing outside of his house uh some a paparazzi has snapped a picture of him and he's just looking like so stressed out and like he's just been through the fucking ringer and like he is just he is over this day he's done with the day and the text is anyone mentions the mandela effect andrew and then that's me and this is a this is of course re- referencing the fact that i the the mention of any mention of the mandela effect just makes my blood run cold and i Get very angry because I just think it's so stupid and it's just a dumb meme that somebody made up. It's not a real phenomenon, but people act like it's a real phenomenon. But it's just a meme. People pretend like they experience the Mandela effect to play into the
0: meme. It's a six. It's a six. I, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go seven and a half. All right, Junior Fellini. Oh no, Junior Fellini is a, a eight.
1: Yeah, Fleeting Jr. is eight.
0: Yeah. Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. <laughs> this, When I saw this meme
1: was when I realized that we had just, our, we, our lives had descended into pure chaos. Yep. Like when I saw this meme, it was, there was a before I saw this meme and an after I saw this meme. Yeah. It's a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger, but his head has been shrunk down. So it's this big giant body with a tiny little head. He's looking, he's holding up and looking at an iPad. In the background, there's a like an a Arby's sign, and then like um like a, an ad for Arby's, and then it says at the top, there's Texas says, "Hey Arnold, what's got y'all pumped up, bro?" And he's saying, "Beefsa, beefsa, arboriza, you son of a bitch." Ten. This is this is by Bill. This is by Bill Bixby's Oscar, and this is just this is pure. It's pure insanity. Ten.
0: Chaos fuel. 10, 10, pure, pure, 10. This this was the moment where I was like, oh, this meme thing has taken on a life all its own. Like we might not get the group back after this. It might just become sentient.
1: This meme is sentient and it, and it wants us to, and it wants us dead.
0: It's 10. I'm calling it now. If this doesn't win this week's meme, uh, Mimorita, Mimor, uh, uh, pizza, fuck. <laughs> if this doesn't win the pizza, pizza, paparitza, Mimorita celebritza for this week. There is no God,
1: which I think this proves that there's no God. So either way, there's yeah, no God. Yeah, it's true.
0: It's true. Yeah, but 10, 10, full ten.
1: I fucking love. Oh, I this.
0: laughed. I laughed at this one so hard too. It's the
1: it's the meme of somebody the big leak in a giant like bucket of water, and then somebody slapping this waterproof tape onto it that stops the leak. And the guy is Paul Verhoeven. The leak is male pattern baldness. And then slapping the tape on the leak is a silent and complicit neo-fascist dystopia. Uh, Fellini. Of course, it's a reference to Verhoeven's toupee, our episode slash concept about living in a surrealistic neo-fascist Nightmare World and we call it the uh Verhoven's Toupe, it's a it's a great meme. And I I'm Fellini, yeah, I, I agree. I agree.
0: Yeah, Fellini. Ugh, hard Fellini. Really good. Really good job. Wait, who did this one? Brendan Greer Greyer? Uh,
1: Brendan Brendan Geer or Geer?
0: Geer. Sorry, Brendan. Sorry, guys. You got you, We're getting
1: a lot of new listeners joining. A lot of these people that are making memes, I've never even talked to them. I've never even seen them post in the group before. This is the first time I've seen their names. So if we mispronounce some of these, we'll we'll get them, just let us know and we'll get them right the next time.
0: Yeah, but uh, Brendan, great for showing. Uh, if we were going to have a draft of the memes, you know, like meme teams for the Deep Cuts universe, uh, Brendan, strong high school prospect looking to get drafted in the first round by one of these deep cuts meme teams because, man, this is, to my knowledge, the first meme you've made, and this is solid. I apologize if you've made other memes that I haven't realized were you, but, man, when I saw this and I was like, and by somebody I don't know, that almost bumped it up to a nine because, like, Aaron, Aaron Dockery, Bloss, Mike Miller, like, they're stalwart deep cuts meme makers, and they're skilled. They're veterans. They've been in the game. They've got a solid three-point game they've got footwork they can work the post solid defense all around utility players and stars in one very rare brendan i don't know shit about you bro you just fucking come out here with this male pattern baldness a silent and complicit neo-fascist dystopia fuck bro you got my attention
1: yeah brendan's brendan's uh reminding me of a young Aaron dockery (laughs)
0: I love the idea. I love the idea of us having like a, um, like a like a meme draft where we're, we're <laughs> drafting. Maybe we we we. I'm I'm guarantee you that will happen eventually. But we need we need to uh, continue for right now. All right. So I gave it a Fellini. You gave it a Fellini. I gave it a hard Fellini.
1: Hard Fellini. Uh, it's the Drake meme where he rejects something and then approves of something. Uh, but over Drake is the devil, and then the first one where he's rejecting it, it's normal jeans, and then the one where he's. Saying hell yeah, it's Jinko jeans because the official the the official jeans of Satan are Jinko jeans.
0: Yes, everyone knows this. This is uh, created by Drew Frisbee. Um, I'm gonna go seven, seven pizzas.
1: Not to be confused or conflated with Zip Frisbee, our fucking arch nemesis.
0: Yeah, Zip Frisbee, who gave us a, a <laughs> shitty review on on Apple Music. Fuck you, Zip Frisbee. Um, but Drew Frisbee, he's my guy. You know why? Because he knows that the devil and Jinko jeans go together.
1: He redeems the Frisbee name.
0: Yeah, he, he really does. Nice job, Drew. I look forward to seeing more from you. You're a promising uh, young meme generator as well, Chef.
1: Young young Chef.
0: Yes. Oh my God, this is like
1: you you got to You 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 got to give it. This is this is like the final. This is like the master stroke of a of a pro. So this is from Mike Miller.
0: Yeah, longtime stalwart listener. And, uh, probably, I would call him, I don't know if I would call him the Michael Jordan of memes, but he's at very least the Larry Bird or Magic Johnson of Deep Cuts memes. Or maybe the Dr. J. Cause he's kind of an old school guy. He's been here since the beginning. He's got some solid chops. He's really tall. He's got that sky hook. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go Dr. J. Mike Miller, aka Dr. J. Miller.
1: Mm hmm. So this is the meme where Phoebe is trying to get Joey to like pronounce something. So she's breaking it down into like parts of the word. And then at the end, he still can't get it. Um, So the first one, she says pizza. And then Joey says, I am merely referring to the pure sexual animalistic energy that is coming off of this photo. uh, Signed, Andrew. And this, this there's a lot to unpack here. This is the first ever deep cuts meme. This is the first ever deep cuts meme that was ever made. And it is one time somebody posted um, a picture of these two wrestlers, these super buff wrestlers. I don't I don't know who they were, but they were just these these glistening like like fucking um, like uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm Blanking on his name now. The, the guy who created Deadpool, uh, Rob. They're they're like Rob Liefeld characters in real life. And so I commented on this post and I said, I am, I said something about them and somebody was like, what do you mean or something? And I said, no, no, I posted this photo. Oh my God, this is not important. No, it's, I got, I have to explain this because this makes no sense unless the origin of it is explained. I posted the picture of these two wrestlers and I said, I said, this is me and Dave getting ready for tomorrow's episode. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then somebody was like, oh, are you doing a wrestling episode? They misunderstood me and thought that I was saying we were going to do a wrestling episode. And so in response, I said, I am merely referring to the pure sexual animalistic energy that is coming off of this photo. So in turn, ever since then, which was like maybe a year ago at this point, Mike Miller has been taking random out of context photos and putting that quote on them. So, anyway, so she says, Pizza. He says, I am merely referring to blah, 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 blah. She says, Wait, what? The next panel over Joey's face is the you think I'm going to say no meme, the picture of Dave that says, Do You think I'm going to say no. And then Phoebe says, Stop before we enter a bit spiral. Then Joey's face is the Ninja Turtles logo, but it says, Dying Woodrow Wilson Longbread. Which is a reference to the pandemic episode we did where we created the concept of breads, which is another, uh, maybe the second Deep Cuts meme that's ever existed. And then the final frame, the final panel of it is that seagull from the meme where he reels his head back and then screams something. And it's just the one where he's screaming and it says kayfabe.
0: 10, 10, 10, 10, a fucking 10. It's a 10. And Mike, I feel so bad right now because there's no way that this is going to win because that Arnold Schwarzenegger meme is so good but on a normal week this would win like this is hands down what should win but it's going to be upset because the because Arnold Schwarzenegger is so strong
1: we're doing we're we're doing we're doing Mike dirty we're doing him so dirty
0: it's it's a 10 Mike this is Oscar winning the, uh, you know what this is Mike this is taxi driver losing the oscar to rocky you know what i mean like this is you are making the taxi driver of memes you can't give up mike you're the future of the deep cuts meme dm but man that arnold schwarzenegger thing is just so good (laughs) do you wait do you agree 10
1: yeah for sure 10
0: yeah 100% 10
1: uh, this is the evolving brain meme Where it starts off with a regular brain And then just gets more and more enlightened
0: Who's, who's it by?
1: This is by Noah Eblen uh, st- a Stalwart listener of the show uh, Co-host of the Let's Look Back podcast Which we went on um, The first one which is a normal brain It says deep cuts meme contest the second one, which is slightly more enlightened, papperizza memearizza. The th- the third one which is even more enlightened, pizza pizza papperizza meme celebritza. And then the final one, where you've reached complete mental enlightenment, pizza pizza meme memearizza celebritza at the mountains of August Madness final four showdown.
0: Uh, I'm gonna go seven. I love this. I think this is great. Yeah, I'm. Gonna, I'm. I'm. I'm going Fellini. You going Fellini? Yeah. Alright, I'll bump it up. Seven and a half. Seven and a half. It's really good.
1: This Dave, like this next one, it's not it's not as flashy as the meme like mashup one that Mike did that we just talked about, or the Arnold Schwarzenegger one. It's not like it's not as like in your face, balls to the wall, swimming for the fences, but in a much more understated way, this next one is beautiful. <laughs>
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. This is so surreal. This is so surreal to me that people are making memes about things that you and I, this is like, it's one thing if they're making stuff about like, I don't know, the, the, you know, long breads or like jokes that we've had on the show, but this is so surreal to me.
1: This is another, this is another one by Noah and it is a photo of, of Werner Herzog. He's standing, uh, either on a boat or just next to a, you know, at a shore next to some kind of lake or something. That's in the backdrop, and he's got a camera on his shoulder, on a on a shoulder rig, but he has it lifted up where he's not pointing it forward. It's kind of just h- hanging on his shoulder, and then somebody from off camera is pointing a gun into his face. Specifically, I think it's a starter pistol um, or a flare gun, and so Werner Herzog, over Werner Herzog, the text says, Andrew and Dave. And then over the hands pointing a gun into his face, it says the formative trauma of three random teenagers. And this is, of course, referencing our story that we told where we witnessed these three teenagers in little Tokyo in Los Angeles who were having this really awkward, painful to watch three person teenage hangout where the two guys were like obviously in love with this like manic pixie dream girl, anime girl, um, she was completely oblivious to them. She was just kind of off in her own world, having fun. And they were trying to like impress her by showing her that they were as fun as she was, even though neither of them actually wanted to be there doing that and would have rather been home playing video games. But they're so desperate to get this girl to like them that they're out here dancing with this girl at like nine at night to the street performer. And we were talking about watching this, and it was like the best movie we'd ever seen, and that no movie could ever match the drama of this real life event we were witnessing. Um, so there, he's he's painted this picture that Werner Herzog is no longer looking through the lens; instead, he's just staring directly into the barrel of the gun, and allowing this this gun to serve as the the finest art and experience he could ever witness and it it and it, it can't even be encapsulated or captured in the lens of his camera.
0: I'm gonna go Fellini. You're a Fellini on this? Yeah. I don't
1: know, man. The I feel like this one's powerful.
0: It's great. It's great. It's really, really good. But Fellini for me.
1: I, I mean, I'm. I would. I would go full ten, but your your skepticism brings makes me second guess enough to where I'll bring it down to uh, a Mickey Rourke. <laughs> yep. Uh huh. This one's by Brock McDonald, and it is this painting of like Mothman.
0: It's a Frank Frazetta painting.
1: Yeah, Frank, Frank Frazetta painting this very like dramatic um, uh, tableau of Mothman or like a Mothman like character reaching down as these two people are like escaping from it or like looking up at it in awe. It's very similar to like the, you know, the the um, what is it? The, the Michelangelo painting of like the man reaching up and touching God. Um, and so Mothman is saying, you boys want to see my longbread?" And then I say, uh, Davy Bakes. And then Dave says, I think I'm going to say no. <laughs> so he's twisted the he's twisted the meme. Yeah. And changed it to, I think I'm going to say no. You finally reached, you finally found that thing that you'll say no to, which is seeing Mothman's longbread.
0: I love it. Eight.
1: Yeah. I'm yeah. Fellini Jr. For me as well. Same thing. Same, same score. Um Speaking of scores. Uh, so this one is that meme where it's this is so terrifying. It's Pam from the office being shown two pictures. And then she's saying they're the same picture. And the way this meme is used is that you show two things that are different, but they're supposed to be the same. Like, if you know, hypothetically, if you showed like a pic, there's like a picture of um, like I've seen I've seen a meme where it's showing like a picture on the left of like Alex Jones. And then on the right there's a picture of like a Nazi or something like that. And then she's like, they're the same picture. So this one, the picture on the left is a picture of Hugh Grant, and the picture on the right is a picture of Mickey Rourke. And then it says Deep Cuts needs to find needs to find the difference between these two photos. And then the bottom one is supposed to be Pam from the office, and she's saying they're the same picture, but she but Aaron Dockery has put my face, has put my face over Pam's, but he hasn't just put my face over Pam's. He didn't just take my face and Photoshop it in. He ran it through FaceApp, app, which actually like deep fakes my face onto her face. And it's terrifying. He's taken a photo of he's taken a photo of me where I have a neutral expression where my mouth is closed and I you can't see my teeth. And I and I have like a, a neutral facial expression. And it's mapped it onto hers. So my mouth is open. I'm smiling, and I have teeth that have been generated by AI. Seven. I feel like I mean I feel like I have to give now. 'Cause it's not yet seven and a half. <laughs> uh this one's this one's by Aaron Diring, and it is the meme of the car salesman who's like slapping a car. Except the car salesman's head has been replaced by Anton LeVay's, and there's a guy, you know, he's showing this thing to, and the car has been replaced by a pair of Jinko jeans. And it says Slaps Jinko jeans. This bad boy can fit so much Satan in it. And this is a reference to the fact that you said that when I was younger in addition to playing into satanist tropes in order to freak out my fundamentalist and conservative surroundings that I also wore jinko jeans and I said you can fit a lot of satan in them. And so this is, you know, that that's where this meme came from.
0: Um I'm going to go 7 Fellini Oh man, oh man, this is a good one. Oh man. Last but not least, on the
1: uh on the pizza pizza paparitza mimaritza celebritza at the mountains of August Madness Final Showdown, one of the memes we reviewed was a meme quote unquote meme by Eric Diring, which was just um a picture of us over the uh the um Deus Ex Mankind Divided game cover and that's just a reference to the fact that Eric like he has this weird thing where he always references that game like any chance he gets so we featured that meme just so we could shit on it and talk about how much we hated it and how irrationally angry it made us and we gave it a a historical one slice of pizza combined right yeah not e- not not one pizza one slice of pizza so, Eric has taken that meme where it's showing somebody celebrating getting a medal, but it, but then at the end, it reveals that he's, like, in literal last place. So, the guy has Eric's name over him, and the medal that the woman is putting over his neck, around his neck, has been replaced by a slice of pizza. And then it's showing him biting into the pizza, because in the original meme, he's, like, biting the medal, like, to prove it's real metal. That's what people do. But they bite it to prove it's gold or whatever. And then he's flipping off everybody. And then he's shaking a champagne bottle. And then at the end, it shows that number, the first place is Aaron. The second place is Brock. The third place is Ed. And then he's at the very last spraying the champagne into his face. And then it says pizza, pizza, paparitza, mimaritza, celebritza at the mountains of August Madness, final four showdown.
0: Uh, For me, 10. This is a 10? This is so funny to me. I laughed so hard when I saw this. Cause it's, it's, it's about the context of this and then that stupid fucking Deus Ex human revolution meme. Like, it's just so funny that there, that this is. I yeah, 10 for me, 10. Yeah,
1: I'm going to go 9 on this. It's very funny, but there's something in the back of my mind that I don't want him to I don't want him to enjoy <laughs> the, <laughs> you, the, the you're giving it pizza. you're sticking
0: it you're sticking it to him just slightly out of, out of principle. What what what
1: what do we say? What are we saying here?
0: Uh I mean, for me the the two contenders honestly are are Mike Miller with the uh escalating kayfabe running memes and the Arnold Schwarzenegger RB Arburita one those those are the two that are in top contention for me what about you
1: yeah so they those are those are in contention i think that those are the same ones those are the top two for me you're 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 basically saying that like the arnold schwarzenegger one is the clear winner
0: it just it just feel to me in context of everything that's been happening in our group and all of the memes that have been made that meme just feels so definitively like a next level meme that it is so bizarre and non sequitur and otherworldly that it really does feel like oh the inmates are now going to start running the asylum in a good way i think maybe in a bad way we'll find out but it really feels like that is like Oh, my God. What did we do? We're only three weeks into recording these pizza, pizza, paparizza, meme, rizza, Imagine where we're going to be in a year. We're not going to be speaking English in a year. I mean, that's
1: kind of already.
0: It's almost. Yeah, it's almost where we're at already. But, yeah, I would say that that is just so strange and so needlessly aggressive. Like, you could have had that same meme but not distort Arnold Schwarzenegger's body. And it still would have been funny. But the fact that it's got this tiny lifeheld head is just, it's amazing. And I, I.
1: So this me this is the meme equivalent to a bucket of Bob Barker's cum is what you're saying.
0: <laughs> yeah. I just feel like, I just feel like, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately for Mike Miller, who is, really deserving of this award and really deserving of the recognition of being the longest running and most dedicated deep cuts listener slash meme creator. He he needs recognition for that meme because it is so good. But unfortunately, the politics get in the way. You know, the optics just aren't in his favor. The, hey, Arnold, what's got you uh, all pumped up, bro? Beefsa, beefsa, Arboritsa, you son of a bitch is like, it's just... A whole, it's a whole other thing
1: all right let's let's call it Bill Bill Bixby's Oscar you're the winner of this week's pizza pizza memorizza or pizza Pizza me memorizza Celebritza.
0: congratulations Bill Bixby's Oscar Oscar I'm low-key not convinced that you're not just Andrew but it's fine um
1: I'm not convinced that you're not like a like some weird bot that like somehow, wandered into our group and like you you're not a real person you're just like a weird algorithm and you just generated this
0: yeah yeah I, it's so weird it's so weird yeah yeah i don't know how to get us out of this so i'll, I'll just say fucking leave a show review on apple music god damn it
1: not you zip frisbee
0: yeah fuck you zip frisbee but drew frisbee you could do it if you wanted you're cool